All right, well, once again, thank you for being here tonight. I want to welcome you all and all those listening on our podcast channel. Tonight, we're going to be continuing our study of the Old Testament book of Joshua. Uh, specifically, we're going to look at chapters 20, 21, and 22. Uh, now, as you're go- looking, uh, pulling out your Bibles and going to that section, let me give you a little bit update on what's been happening so far, quite a little bit of a recap. Up to this point, the Israelites have been uh, fighting for the promised land, and they have been very, very successful. In fact, chapter 19 um, describes the final part of the Israelite nation dividing up the promised land so that each tribe gets their appointed section. And so now, now that each tribe has their own appointed section, everyone's settling in, now comes the time to think about some of the governing rules. How are you going to handle the different things that come up once you have your own land, your own space? While they're wandering the desert, they didn't have to worry about things so much. They didn't have their own land. They were constantly on the move. But now that they're settled, now that each person has their own land, there are issues that are going to come up, things that are going to happen. They're going to have to establish processes for, and essentially that's what governing is, right? And that's what this is getting into. So the first issue that's listed in Joshua chapter 20 is what's called the cities of refuge, So let's read about what it tells us and let's talk about it because this was very important back then. So Joshua chapter 20, verses 1 to 3. If you don't have your Bibles, no worries. All the verses will be on the screen above my head. This is what it says. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge, as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. Okay, little background here. Back in the book of uh, Numbers chapter 35, God gave the Israelites a command to set up refuge, a cities of refuge once they enter the promised land. Okay, and the purpose was, kind of as it describes, was that if someone kills somebody accidentally, you know, caused the unintentional death of a person, the person who caused that can flee to one of these designated cities. It's called a city of refuge. And they would need to do this because the family member of the person they killed would usually come after them for retribution, revenge, right? That's what was called the avenger of blood. It's basically an eye for an eye, kind of, right? And the concept of eye for an eye was something that God did command. It was in Exodus 21, but that was always when someone intentionally committed a crime, intentionally committed murder, injured someone. Now, also, if you remember the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment says, you shall not do what? Murder, right? Some translations will say, thou shalt not kill. But the best way to translate that is actually murder, not kill. Because murder means it was intentional. It was planned. It was something from your heart, right? So that was the intent, to prevent that. And so this shows that God understood that it was possible for accidents to happen, even bad accidents, right? Where it's unusual, it's unintentional, and circumstances where someone could lose their life. For example, today, if anyone here unfortunately caused a car accident where someone died, right, clearly unintentional, that would clearly not be murder. It would be unintentional, right? Um, And so back in the time of um, the Israelites, when an accident occurred and someone um, caused the death of someone, um, what would happen was this person could then flee to one of these cities of refuge that were spread throughout the nation. And when they got there, they would essentially plead their case. Let's continue reading because the next verses, next few verses are going to explain what happens once they arrive to one of these cities, right? Because there's a whole process to this. It wasn't just thrown together. So let's look, look at Joshua uh, 20, verse 4. 
when they flee to one of these cities, they are to stand in the entrance of the city gate and state their case before the elders of that city. Then the elders are to admit the fugitive into their city and provide a place to live among them. Okay, so this text tells us the person you know, obviously heads to one of these cities of refuge, and they immediately, on their arrival, state their case. They, they, they plead their case. They t- say what happened. And then the elders of that city decide whether or not to let them in. Now notice, once the person is allowed in, the elders then provide for that person. So they allow them in, and they actually provide a place for them to live. So it's not simply they open the door, and the person runs in, and now they're on their own and have to provide for themselves but they provide protection, the person now becomes part of their responsibility, becomes one of their own. You see, God always wanted the Israelites to be different. He wanted them to care for one another. They were not to treat each other the way the other nations did. They were to stand out for their devotion to God, to each other, but they're also to be held accountable. Sin, breaking the law, would have serious consequences but there was always a process to repair that relationship and bring somebody back into the fold when appropriate. And so now according to this process, the person who unintentionally killed someone, right, they're in the city, they're under the protection of that city, and so now we're going to see what happens, and God's going to lay out a process for when the avenger of blood, the person coming to find them, actually shows up. Verses 5 and 6. If the avenger of blood comes in pursuit, the elders must not surrender the fugitive because the fugitive fugitive killed their neighbor unintentionally and without malice aforethought, meaning they didn't plan it. It was not intentional. They are to stay in that city until they have stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at that time. Then they may go back to their own home in the town from which they fled. So the elders of the city, they're obliged to provide protection for the person who fled to their city for refuge. They're not allowed, they're not supposed to allow the avenger of blood to have access to that person. The accused was going to have a trial. They would decide if it was on accident. And if they were acquitted, the person was allowed to stay in the city until the high priest had passed away, which could be years or decades, a very long time. Now, this may sound a little strange, this whole process, a little unusual, but back then, that was actually a fairly sophisticated process, right? The intent, and this is where it really matters, the intent was to make a clear distinction between intentional, something from your heart where you cause harm, and something unintentional. Does that kind of make sense? This is, and this is really big. Any form of premeditate, premeditated harm was strictly forbidden and was dealt with severely. That's what an eye for an eye went, was meant for. You had someone who planned to do evil, had time to think about it, alter their plans, then execute it. And that is very, very different. And that was dealt with severely. Now, what's interesting about this system is this is God laying out a system for people to really start to look inwards at themselves, the planning, the execution, and completely separate that out from some, something that is a complete accident. This is about accountability. Even if the incident was an accident, this person still had to prove their innocence. They had to live in a foreign city until the current high priest died. So they didn't get off scot-free. There was still a price. Um, They were exiled in a foreign city for a number of years, but there was a defined process on how to handle this, 
right? And this also includes the avenger of blood role that was previously mentioned. This, this is what's interesting, though, too. This, this system recognized that if you lost a family member, someone else killed them unintentionally, that you might not be in the right state of mind in your anger, in your desire for revenge to get even, and your desire to get uh, revenge, you might do something that's equal, if not worse, than what had already happened. You may may take a bad situation and make it far worse, right? And that's really what it was uh, meant to prevent. You now murdering somebody in anger is just simply going to make things worse. It would perpetuate anger, violence, retribution, and it would just bring more sin into the nation. So God was instituting a system, basically a protective barrier to prevent that from happening. Okay? Now let's continue. Let's look at verse 9, because now it's going to tell us who this applied to. So Joshua 20, verse 9. Any of the Israelites, and notice this, any foreigner residing among them who killed someone accidentally could flee to these designated cities and not be killed by the, by the avenger of blood prior to standing trial before the assembly. So you notice this ordinance from God didn't apply just to the Israelites, but to also the foreigners among them. This shows that God had intended other people to be affected by his laws, to know his laws, to be held accountable. Right? They were meant to direct all people to look at their own sin, at their own behavior, and learn the difference between right and wrong. This is God laying out the groundwork for us to realize our sin and to hold us accountable, hold us responsible. And as you can probably start to read between the lines, this is also God laying the early groundwork for the future Messiah to truly and permanently remove our sins. And this is a very cool time because we're not just seeing the law, but what the law is meant to do to people, is have them really look inward and evaluate, right? And right along we see that God is not just providing a path to deal with sin, but he's also providing a path to comfort us while we live in this sinful world. The effects of sin are awful, and they have wide-ranging effects. Individually, sin affects us, but also on a worldwide scale. Heck, look what's going on in the world today, how sin affects the entire world. And one of the easiest ways to get this mental picture of how bad the effects of sin are worldwide, imagine for just a second, if you can, imagine what it would be like if everybody the world over, regardless if they believed in God or not, if they followed the Ten Commandments. They just, they, they just followed them. And imagine if they did that well. Now imagine what it would be like to grow up in a world like that. To raise your own kids. To grow old in a world like that where there was no murder. Where kids had no idea what that is. Where there was no lying, cheating, or stealing. What would that world be like? It's mind-boggling if you're honest. It's hard to fathom how different this world would be. And that's why God understands this, how painful sin can be. That's why he gave us uh, comfort and support in this world because people have the ability, the choice to walk away from him, to commit sin, to do awful things. And so these cities of refuge that God mandated, they direct us to see him for who he is. He's our God. He's there to comfort us. He's there to help us in spite of all the stuff that we do. Right? He's to be our refuge. And these cities of refuge, they also foreshadow the coming Messiah who's to really be our comfort, our true hope, right? He's the one that gives us rest for our souls and makes all things new. This is the perfect time. I want to share two Bible verses with you that really just 
bring this together. One's from the Old Testament, one's from the New. And they take this idea of cities of refuge, and they just, it's just wonderful. So the first one is from Psalm 46, verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. In Matthew 23, or 28, Matthew 11, 28, I just, I love this, I always have. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Now, both of these verses paint this picture that as we experience the world of sin and separation, all this stuff, it doesn't have to be that way. With God, we can find comfort. We can find refuge. We can run to him, and he will protect us. He'll care for us. And in the words of Jesus, they just cap that off with this wonderful blanket statement, to all people. He says, come to me. Just come. If you're weary, if you're lost, if you have no hope, just come to me and I will give you rest for your soul. And you really can't state, overstate how, how awesome that is. He's offering, Jesus is offering refuge and peace to people who can't find it anywhere else, where there is none, right? And so what we're reading about today with these cities of refuge is God is making himself known to the Israelites in many different ways through the law, but also as a form of refuge. Now let's continue our story, and now we're going to jump into verse, or sorry, chapter 21. But in this particular chapter, we're not going to go verse by verse, because verses 1 through 40 lists off the individual towns that the Levites were being given. So what we're going to do instead is go to the very end and look at verses 41 and 42 and talk about it, because it really sums this up. So Joshua 21, 41 to 42. It says, the towns of the Levites in the territory held by the Israelites were 48 in all, together with their pasture lands. Each of these towns had pasture lands surrounding it, and this is true for all the towns. Now, this is what's cool, because the Levites were known as the priestly class. They're the, they were the ones in charge of worship, in charge of knowing and teaching the laws. They were in charge of the sacrifices. They made sure everything was done the way it was supposed to. And they were that bridge between God and his people. And to make sure they were able to achieve this role, God made sure there were 48 towns that were given to the Levites. And those towns were spread throughout Israel, right? They're spread throughout the promised land. They weren't given like one little section and everybody else is like, think like Pac-Man. You know, you just get one little section and everybody else is over here. No, they were spread throughout, right? They were literally spread out so they could live, work, and be among the entire nation. And this is the exact same model that Jesus instituted with his disciples. If you remember in John chapter 17, before Jesus goes back to heaven, right before he goes back to heaven, he prays to God. And he prays for the Father not to take his disciples out of this world. He knows there's going to be hardship, but he knows his disciples have a very hands-on role to continue his work, and they can only do this if they're out amongst the people. So what does he do? Jesus prays for God to protect them while they're in this world, to keep them safe while they live, walk, and work amongst the people. And heck, he knew from the very first moment that was going to be the case. Do you remember what Jesus said to the very first disciples he called? It's in Matthew 4, 19. He says, come and follow me. And then what? I'm going to send you out to fish for people. I'll make you fishers of men, depending on. So for the very first thing, he says, come with me, because we're going out amongst the people. Your job is to go amongst the people and find more people. Right? And Jesus, he led this way. There are multiple times in the New Testament where he specifically 
hung out with sinners, right? He went into their homes. He ate with them. He looked for them and intentionally spent time among everybody. He made it a point. He was looking for people who needed a shepherd. Today, we have this role as well. I don't know if you remember, what did Jesus say in the Great Commission? Go and make disciples of what? All nations. He didn't say go up to your room and just send out mass emails. Just boom, just hit, boom, boom, boom. He said go, go. Eat with the people. Get to know them. Do life together, right? To go and make disciples of all nations means we need to go all over the world. So this is, this is the model that God has instituted for a very long time. It started with the Israelites through Jesus all the way up to us. And the overall point is that God wants to know his people. He wants to live among them and have them know him. And this concept directs uh, directly relates to some of our, our disciplines here that we teach in this church, and there's two in particular relating to this. One of them is gathering for worship, and the other is connecting with the community. Both of those disciplines, they encourage us to stay close to God and the people around us, right? What are we doing here tonight? We all came here to worship. We, we sing together. We pray together. We learn together, right? We do life together. We're also called to go out and be in the community, Spend time with others. Get to know them. Share your faith. Let them know about Jesus Christ. We're to do life together. We're to let other people see us go through the ups and downs of life where they can learn about Jesus through us. Let's continue now. Let's read Joshua verses 21, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verses 43 to 45. It says, So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it, and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Now, do you kind of get what the purpose of this few verses are? The purpose of Joshua writing this portion is, should be obvious. He's demonstrating for all future generations, people who study this, that God delivers on his promises. 100%. He can be trusted. When he makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. God called the Israelites to drive out the Canaanites, and there was a number of times, if you remember from this book, they were vastly outnumbered, vastly outgunned. There was even a battle where the opposing forces had chariots, thousands of them, and soldiers on horseback, and the Israelites were on foot. That's not a battle I necessarily want to get involved in. Oh, you know what I mean? Not on that side. But they followed God. They trusted God. They went into battle, and they won. So the major point Joshua's making here is God is a good God. He can be trusted. And again, when he makes a promise, you can take it to the bank. Now, there's also something else going on here that's very cool, and it has everything to do with God giving them rest on all sides. Now, on the surface, that seems great, but it's, just, it's deeper. Back when the Israelites were originally freed from slavery, God gave them Passover, right? You've heard that word before, or that holiday. He gave them Passover as a way to remember and to celebrate that he freed them from slavery with his mighty hand. So they had the Passover, but there was also a caveat. They were to eat it as though they were on the move, right? They weren't safe in the promised land. So let's go to Exodus chapter 12 and let's see what I'm talking about. So Exodus 12 verse 11. God says, this is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and do what? Eat it in haste. 
it is the Lord's Passover. So this was a celebration, yep, but you'll notice this wasn't relaxing, recline in your chair, sit back, eat your Doritos, enjoy the day kind of a thing. They were to celebrate it as though they were on the move with their shoes on, with their staff in hand, their belt ready to go. And they were to eat it in haste, meaning quickly. Don't take your time. Don't take little bites. Dip every little piece. Oh, you woof it down, right? And this is the exact opposite of how we celebrate Thanksgiving, right? How do we do Thanksgiving? Me too. I mean, two thumbs right here. We, we, <laughs> we woof it down. We take all day, Right? You relax, you enjoy, you may even go back for seconds or thirds, you take a nap, you watch some football, you go back at dinner, have a little more, right? It's an all-day thing. But the Israelites were to eat it in haste because they were in haste. They were heading into the desert. They were going to be there for 40 years. And then when they entered the promised land, they were going to have to fight to take control of the promised land. Once all that was complete, all that's done, once God had fulfilled all of his promises, when they're safe on all sides... When they're now settled, now they're going to celebrate Passover and they're going to eat it relaxed. They're going to sit. They're going to be reclined. They're going to enjoy this land of milk and honey, right? So this is awesome because the land is now truly theirs, right? And so everything about this is just bigger and more meaningful. They were slaves in Egypt. They had nothing, and now they have the promised land, right? It's very, very cool. Now, as we move into the final chapter for tonight, which is chapter 22, there are two important things that are going to happen happen here. Number one, Joshua is going to release the three tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh to go back to their homes on the other side of the Jordan River. And the second thing is when they get home, they're going to do something that's going to cause quite a stir that's pretty much going to about bring everybody to a civil war. So it's huge. So let's read that. Joshua 22, verses 1 to 4. Then Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he said to them, You have done all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded, and you have obeyed me in everything I commanded. For a long time now, to this very day, you have not deserted your fellow Israelites, but have carried out the mission the Lord your God has given you. Now that the Lord your God has given them rest, as he promised, return to your homes in the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. So what they're talking about is here, is as the Israelites originally approached the promised land, God gave those three tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, their portion of the promised land, let's say, let's say this is the Jordan River, their portion is on this side. But now the Israelites are going to have to cross the Jordan and go into the main promised land. But God said, don't get settled yet. Your fighting men need to go with everybody else. They're going to have to stay with them. They're going to have to fight. Once everybody else has their promised land, their sections, your fighting men can go back. And that's what this is about, right? And so um, what's so cool is this is further proof that everyone had their piece of land, they had peace, because now Joshua is sending them back. He says, we don't need you. Go back to your homes. Cross the Jordan. Plant your garden. Put up your fence. Put up your hammock. Relax, right? But he also, when he sends them back, he reminds them to keep all of God's commands. Don't turn to the right. Don't turn to the left. Remain close to God in your heart and soul. And this is important because we're going to see in just a minute uh, the Israelites, for a while, they, very, for a long while, they had been one group. They fought together. They traveled together. Joshua was, was their leader. He was constantly with them. So basically, it was a lot easier to stay on course. There was a lot of accountability because they were closely together. Also, just simply being constantly at war has a way to focus 
you know, everybody in one direction. But let's continue now. Let's read verses 9 and 10 and see what happens. So the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh left the Israelites at Shiloh and Canaan to return to Gilead. That's their own land, which they acquired in accordance with the command of the Lord through Moses. When they came to Gileoth, near the Jordan in the land of Canaan, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an imposing altar there by the Jordan. So it may not jump out at you right off the bat, but this has everything to do with what they just built. Once back on their side of the Jordan, the text tells us they built this huge imposing altar, which means it wasn't small and insignificant. You could see it. It was enormous, right? It stood out. It caught your eye. Again, may not seem like a big deal, but it is big because uh, verses 11 uh, through 12 tell us when the other Israelites heard about it, when they heard this thing was built, they gather the whole assembly of Israel together and they make a decision to go to war against those three tribes. All the other tribes decide this is such an affront to God. This is such a bad thing. They may have to wipe out three of their own tribes. They have to be dealt with. So what they do is they send over a man named Phineas, who's the son of the priest, the Elias or the priest. They send 10 of their chiefs and the head of each of the family clans, and they go to see the other tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Manasseh. They want to see this for themselves, and they want to talk about it. So they're, they're sending all their bigwigs over there. All right. Now remember, just a little bit ago, everything was hunky-dory. They had the promised land. Everybody had their own section. They were going back to plant their gardens and enjoy their life. But now something has happened. So let's jump back into verses 15 to 19, and let's see what happens when the chiefs, the elders, they all meet together. It says, When they went to Gilead, to Reuben, uh, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they said to them, The whole assembly of the Lord says, How could you break faith with the God of Israel like this? How could you turn away from the Lord and build yourselves an altar in rebellion against him now? Was not the sin of Peor enough for us? Up to this very day, we have not cleansed ourselves from that sin, even though a plague fell on the community of the Lord. And now you are turning away from the Lord? If you rebel against the Lord today, tomorrow he will be angry with the whole community of Israel. If the land you possess is defiled, come over to the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and share the land with us. But do not rebel against the Lord or against us by building an altar for yourselves other than the altar of the Lord our God. So there's a couple things to note here. God had given the Israelites very, I don't know if you remember this, very, very strict instructions on the tabernacle, the altar, how to build it, what to make it out of, where to put it, who can come anywhere near it, right? Do you guys remember all that stuff with the Ark of the Covenant? All that stuff. So when these three tribes built their own altar on the other side of the Jordan. They were giving the impression, hey, we're on our own now. We're doing our own thing. We forgot all about that. Even though God said to do this this way, we're going to do it our own. And so their actions caused a huge stir, understandably so. And all the chiefs and the elders tell them that their actions may have defiled the land. And they said, listen, we've seen God get angry with us. We're still feeling the effects of that. And what they're talking about, and what he lists is the sin of Peor. What they're referring to is something that happened in uh, uh, Numbers 25, where unfortunately a very large section of the Israelites intermingled with a foreign nation, the people of Moab. And this intermingling with the Moabites, uh, what happens is the Moabites offered their daughters in marriage. 
They shared meals together. They offered up their own God to the Israelites. And at that point, I think about 20,000 people of the Israelites intermarried with the Moabites. They started to worship their God, one of the Baal gods, uh, Peor. So it's not like they became friends and played around a golf together. They intermarried. They let go. They stopped following God, and they started following this other God. And the story goes that God's anger burned against the Israelites, and he commanded Moses and the elders to kill all of the Israelites that went astray. And the text tells us that there were 24,000 Israelites that died that day at the hand of their fellow Israelites. So this is a very big deal, right? And, and the point was, whatever one tribe does affects all the other tribes. God had given them very strict commands. He was clear many times over that if they followed him and followed his commands, he would bless them and they would flourish. But if they turned away from him, his anger uh, would come against them. Again, that may sound harsh, but God was also very clear. So the chiefs and the elders, they met with the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Manasseh. They expressed their concern and their, ah, about this altar. Um, and now let's read the response that they're given from those three tribes. It's verses 26 and 27. It says, This is why we said, Let us get ready and build an altar, but not for burnt offerings or sacrifices. On the contrary, it is to be a witness between us and you and the generations that follow that we will worship the Lord at his sanctuary with our burnt offerings, sacrifices, and fellowship offerings. Then, in the future, your descendants will not be able to say to ours, you have no share in the Lord. So what this means is that the three tribes did not build this altar to replace the main altar um, in Israel, but rather they constructed their altar as a, more, excuse me, as a memorial, as a witness to all the tribes that they are one nation. These three tribes, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and Manasseh, were concerned because everybody else is here on this side of the Jordan, and they're over here. Over time, this group would be like people on the other side of the tracks, and they would feel left out. And it, it, and it would continue generation after generation where eventually these people would be like, we don't even know you. You're not part of us. And so they wanted to build this altar as a reminder to all the tribes, that we are one nation. We belong to God. We worship one God. So it was actually very cool. Right? And so the elders, they end up, they stand down. They realize this was not a front to God. It has nothing to do. It's not taking away from the original altar. It's a reminder, right? which, is, which is really, really cool. Now, this is what we need to take from this part of the story, is that the zeal of the Israelites, the, the, the emphasis they had to remain cl- close to God, had everything to do with the covenant that they had. But we also need to note their desire to hold each other accountable, to make sure they're doing the right thing, right? Because of the sacredness of the covenant and because of the past problems they had gotten into, they were dead set on making sure nobody made any mistakes, even if that meant they would go to war with another tribe. Now, that's all pretty serious, but the question is, how does that specifically relate to us? What do we need to take from this? And our actual, actually, our answer is going to come from a few of our seven disciplines here at Calvary. We've talked about those before. And if you're not familiar, I want to share them with you. Now, what these things are is we have the Bible, we study it, but how do we internalize it? How do we live that out? And this is how we do that. We gather for worship. We spend time with Jesus. We connect with the community. We fight for freedom, freedom from sin. We join a serve team. We live on mission. And we invest our resources. 
Now, for the sake of the teaching tonight, the two disciplines that relate most to what we've been studying are the two in bold, where we spend time with Jesus and we live on mission. If you want to write those down, that's a great point, something you should always remember. The whole focus of the Israelites and our focus today is to remain close to God above all. And today we have Jesus Christ. No matter how close we are, no matter how far, far we are, whatever we're going through, Jesus can help us through it all. He's our true north. It's through his teachings that we should see, that we should evaluate the world and evaluate our behavior. And then this takes us to the other discipline, and that is to live on mission. Whether you're an Israelite back in Joshua's time, trying to secure the promised land, or today, growing in your faith, living out that faith, we need to stay on mission. Right? Because if we're not on mission, or we're one of those people we take our mission hat on and off as it suits us, then we're showing the world that Jesus really isn't our focus, that he's not the lens that we use to see the world. Right? We're just no different than anyone else. But the truth is, because of Jesus Christ, we are different. Think about what's going on in the Middle East. Why do we have hope? Because we have Jesus Christ. No matter what we're going through, we have Jesus Christ. We don't have to fight over such things. We are saved. Our goal is to take that message to the world, to share that hope, right? The hope and the joy that comes from knowing God and his Messiah. So tonight, if you, anybody here, hasn't made the choice to follow Jesus Christ, we always want you to have that opportunity. We want you to know him. We want you to follow him. We want you to have that joy and take it with you. And then when God calls you, we want to be ready to step out in faith to do things for him. So tonight as we finish, if you would like to know Jesus Christ, if you want to follow him, then I want you to say this prayer with me. If you'd like to have your sins washed away and be made new, just repeat what I say. And for the rest of you, we're going to pray for you as well. We're going to pray for everybody here to have an increase in faith, to trust in God, and to step out and use their gifts to be on mission and help everybody know Jesus Christ. Okay? So if you would, let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Father, tonight I ask Jesus to come into my heart. I want to know him, and I want him to know me. I admit that I am a sinner, and I repent of my sin, and I no longer want to do life alone. I ask Jesus to come into my heart. I ask him to forgive me, and I ask him to wipe my sins away. And then I ask for a new life following him. Father, tonight, each one of us here, we pray for faith, we pray for strength, and the courage to endure all trials that this world throws at us. We pray that in all places, at all times, in all situations, that we may be a bright, shining example of your Son, and may our actions lead others to know him. May others see him shining through us, and may it bring them hope, real hope. And Father, tonight, we also we, we recommit ourselves to you. There are many times in life we fall away or fall out of sync with you, but tonight we make the choice to commit to you. And Father, we also pray for all people to come to know you and to place their trust in you. It's only through you and the saving grace of your Son that we have hope that we're saved and that we're made new. And Father, we pray that as our faith grows, you will use each one of us as you see fit. Use us to expand your kingdom, to reach people who don't know you. And Father, we thank you for the life that you've given each one of us. We thank you for your church. But most of all, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we ask all these things. Amen.